listening to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with host Shereen Rice on the CWR Talk Network. Good evening, this is Shereen Rice with Making a Difference About Domestic Violence. My goal for this show is to educate and help in a healing journey for those that are suffering from domestic abuse. I'm pre-recording tonight, so I will not be able to take any calls. If you're listening tonight and would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at shereencwr at gmail.com. Let me spell that out for you. S-H-A-R-E-E-N-E-C-W-R at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd like to remind everyone that this show is on every Thursday night at 6 p.m. Pacific, 7 Mountain, 8 Central Time. My show can also be heard on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play if you subscribe to the services. If you want to direct link to the services, you may go to the CWR homepage on the website, cwrtalknetwork.com. Click on the logo for that service. If at any time you experience a trigger, because we are going to be talking about trauma, um, you need to call the national hotline, and let me give you that number, 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233. And I have a great, great guest for us tonight, and we'll be right back for our public service announcement. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel. And a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with your host, Shereen Rice, on the CWR Talk Network. Welcome back. Um, I'm going to be introducing you to... (laughs) I can't even think of what I'm going to do. Um, Ashley from... California and is currently in counseling psychology PhD student at the University of Texas Austin where she is studying to the impact of traumatic experiences on attachment in military and law enforcement families she completed her undergraduate studies at the University of California San Diego received her bachelor and received her bachelor's degree in psychology and an emphasis in behavior and neuroscience she completed her clinical training and obtained her master's degree at Pepperdine University Graduate School of Education and Psychology and Clinical Psychology with an emphasis in marriage and family therapy. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California and a certified clinical trauma professional by the IATP. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> Okay, so I just, that was a mouthful that I had to say there. I will say yeah, to my callers that I have, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I was just going to tell my listeners that I've known you for a couple of years. So you understand when I don't get anything right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk about trauma tonight, and I've been talking to you about that for several 
past several days because of mm-hmm. an interest of mine uh, that someone brought up to me on my Facebook. But I'm not going to talk about that right now. What I'm going to talk about is one of the questions uh, that was brought up was that women that have gone through severe trauma sometimes repeat their story a lot. So what I would like you to do is just kind of share with us what's going on with the brain. Um, mm-hmm. What's something that might be able to help them to heal from that or get past that? Or is it necessary that uh, they get past that rapidly or it just time or, or whatever it is that you, you think? So let's start there. Okay, thanks for the mountain. <laughs> a lot I know, but <laughs> that's okay. So let's start with trauma. So when trauma happens, trauma can look different for every person. And if we're speaking about domestic violence, it's relationship-based trauma, which I like to frame it as an attachment injury. And it's an injury based on the way that you relate to everyone and can interpret your relationships throughout the rest of your life when you experience an attachment injury. And with trauma, let's go into the brain for a second. When trauma happens, we have these different parts of our brain that light up, specifically our limbic system. Our limbic system is the system that's responsible for all of the attachments we have. It's the mammal inside of our brain, and it's really sensitive to trauma, specifically the relationship traumas. Um, And when somebody is being traumatized and with relationship trauma, this is an ongoing process, right? Like the part of the limbic system that is responsible for activating your fear and your survival response, that amygdala, it lights up and it tells your body, hey, you are in danger. You need to survive and figure it out. Unfortunately, when trauma happens, the system gets so overloaded that the parts of the brain that are responsible for figuring it out and even putting words to figuring it out, which is the front of the brain, our prefrontal cortex, uh, it, that superhighway that exists between the other parts of the brain to function in a way that get you to survival, they shut down when trauma happens and that freeway gets jammed. And unfortunately, people aren't able to create a, nar- a narrative or a dialogue to understand that trauma or to even speak about that trauma. So when I work with trauma survivors, one of the biggest struggles that we have is getting to the point where you can get the story out the story comes out in different pieces. It comes out at different moments. Um, when you said something about triggers and if you get triggered and needing to get extra support, like triggers happen in very banal ways to, to the common man or the person who hasn't been traumatized, but for that individual who gets triggered, that whole system gets rewired all over again. It gets lit up just like it's experience, you're experiencing the trauma all over again and um, things get really scrambled. So, when somebody leaves a relationship, an abusive relationship or abusive marriage, or um, no matter how long that period of time has been, we have a scrambled egg sort of brain that we start working with. Um, the, the wires are all crossed. It's almost as if you could take the last, you know, terrible natural disaster movie you've seen uh, and think about how the brain mimics that sort of environment. There's no messages that are getting sent across town. You can't access the electricity. You can't access the resources you need to, to stay alive and, and get the help you need. So um, when somebody is in the process of making sense out of all of that, they oftentimes need a lot of help to do that, right? Uh, you don't notice what you're doing that, isn't necessary or unhelpful anymore because you're 
still operating on that system of trauma. Your brain wants you to survive any situation, whether it's something that is very manageable or easy or it's something that's very challenging or triggering. Um, but when you get into those places where you're triggered or you're operating on that system where it just doesn't make sense, you're not very successful to the outsider looking in, they're like, what is going on, right? Like, what is, how does that even make sense? Right. Uh, because of the common man or the outsider looking in, that doesn't make sense. Because to that person, they've never needed that operating system to function in a way that they survive a traumatic experience. So one of the common issues that I see a lot of with folks that come in and I do therapy with is that their support system wants them to just get over it. (laughs) Um, How sensitive (laughs) is that? (laughs) Just get over it. He's not around. She's not around. They're not around anymore. Or you're out of that relationship. How come you can't shake that? Right. We hear a lot of those excuses because, like, I mean, for people to watch somebody go through a traumatic experience of a relationship, intimate partner violence, it's a struggle for them to see that person coming out and being able to reintegrate into the world. Because trauma rewires all of the ways that you navigate life. You're using this new language that you have to retranslate with other people and other relationships. So when you ask about, like, why do trauma survivors repeat the same stories, it's because their language that their brain has used to operate and survive through these traumatic events and through the traumatic relationship, that that language is not um, helpful or necessary anymore. But people think, well, you should just be over it. You should just get on with your life. You should just pack it up and put it away. And you can't do that once you've experienced a trauma. Um, right. And you, yeah. it's it's different times uh, linked for different people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say yeah. for me, it was probably a couple of years I was kind mm-hmm. of still in that mesh. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it depends, too, because of how long... Uh, you endured a, a traumatic situation. What were the events that unfolded in that situation? And uh, to one person who has a lot of resources and a lot of support, a very small in comparison amount of trauma or time period amount of trauma could be much more impactful um, depending on other resiliency factors. If somebody is remotely isolated or they're in a shaming community or a community that, of unknowing, then there's going to be a lot more barriers to what happens next. And we have to acknowledge, too, that I see, I see folks that, and all my other clinicians out there can also share that, and I'm sure you could, too, is that some people think that they're very ready to get through their do their trauma work and do the treatment that they need to in order to be thriving and, and living the life and living well. Um, but then the work gets really scary. And it's really hard to get people to do the work that they need to. So they make a little bit of progress and then they step out of the therapy space, the healing space, and old habits die hard, right? Just like it's hard to learn a new language once you've relied upon the language of trauma in order to survive. Um, right. So I've, I've worked with a lot of women and men that they experience the power of recovery and it can be very scary. And it's scary because it's unknown. And while it doesn't have the same threat as being in a relationship that's harmful, um, the unknown is often way more scary. Because I don't have a language for the unknown, but I do have a language for the trauma. 
Right. Yeah. And when you think about the replaying the cycle, repeating the patterns, having the same events that are occurring over and over and over again, that's because the brain is working itself through the trauma that it still hasn't comprehended. And I don't say comprehend because you didn't understand it. I mean comprehend because the brain hasn't processed that amount of shock that has happened into the system. So when I work with folks for a long period of time, over periods of time where they seem to have things be very stable, all of a sudden, oh, no, that trigger came up again, or oh, no, that that type of person came back into my life. What's going on? And the way that I normalize that for all my clients and, and just people I work around is that when you get to a place of stability, your brain says, oh, now it's time to deal with this trauma that I have been holding on to, but I haven't had enough resources to deal with. So it's not uncommon for me to see folks that they get out of that crisis mode. Um, I'm feeling safe. I'm feeling stable now. But, oh, and now this new person's come back into my life, and I really like this relationship, and I like what's happening, and I'm going to fall back into the moonlight that is of being in love or being attached to someone else. But then again, that pattern comes around, and you see that that person is ignoring the red flags or ignoring everything, and everyone on the outside is, like, waving those <laughs> signal flares, like, don't do it. Oh, my God, stop. No. But, you, you know, you can't do anything about it because that person has to get to a point where they recognize themselves, like, oh, this is a pattern for me. This is something that's happening and I have to acknowledge what I have control over versus what my trauma has control over. So the trauma work is really complicated because each person has to go through that process, whatever that looks like, all on their own. And I can tell you from doing the 10 years of trauma work that I've done with folks that every story is different and everybody's trajectory is different. And there is not one size fits all for how people are supposed to recover. Right. Yeah, so that's a tough question to answer <laughs> in terms of how how do people really work through that process, and it, it's individualized. And when I think yeah. about how to help people who are supporting these individuals or who are a part of their support network, it's to be flexible and understanding. Right. In that same, t- yeah, in that same I- token, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, continue. Uh, just that in, in that same token, it's um, – it can be really tough to be a supportive other for somebody going through the bouts of what trauma and relationships look like because there are a lot of setbacks or what you would say are setbacks, but really that person is so brave in trying to navigate this process of being in relationships with other people. Um, so just thinking about how you can frame that differently and keeping your boundaries without trying to prescribe to anybody else how they should or should not be living their life. It's very tricky. Very tricky. Yeah, I was Mm -hmm. just um, going to say that um, so no one can really help them really get through it. Uh, They have to get through it themselves. I I did have someone has to make that decision. Yeah. Well, I do have someone say to me, you're, you're still in the battle. And that was after Mm -hmm. about a year and uh, a year I was out and I'm like, yeah, I'm still in the battle, but I don't know how to get out of the battle. And Mm -hmm. I think as I continued to process 
and I continued to work on my executive functioning skills and, mm-hmm. you know, serve other people that were in the same situation, um, I think it just naturally happened. Would mm. you agree? Mm-hmm. Mm. I think that when you're right, so you, you talked about like you were going through it and things were state, you were out. So you were out for a year and things were a little bit more stable. Then you were able to use those resources, right, to work on like executive functioning and all these other supportive mechanisms that are necessary to mm-hmm. continue that recovery process. And everything happens in stages, right? I say that there's right. about three stages that we go through when we're, we're focused on relationship-based trauma. And the first is that safety and stability where you really have to get out of crisis. Then the second stage is still managing when you get into crisis, but also how do I continue to get those good coping skills so that I can manage the stress of my day-to-day when it's based on trauma triggers or situations that are repeating themselves. And then that third stage is where we get to all the ancillary other impacts that have um, started to plague somebody's body based on trauma. So that being like depression, anxiety, um, other comorbid issues. But really like those stages all build off of each other. And if you stop working in one of those stages, then you're going to find yourself backsliding into another and having to struggle really. But you're right. When you get to a point where you have enough resources, you have enough stability, you have enough coping mechanisms, the things will start to work themselves out. But people have to make the active choice to be using those resources and using those coping skills and be committed to the recovery just like they do in any other capacity for something that's really detrimentally changed their life trajectory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, actually perfect <laughs> what I was thinking mm-hmm. of and and that's exactly I think what I needed to understand but also mm-hmm. is it not true that that's why other victims that have already gone through it is probably the best person to talk to when you're repeating things because they <laughs> understand oh um, th- I mean there's such a, a split split caucus on that one right because yeah on one hand I believe that it's really valuable to have people who can tell you yes Shereen I have felt this I have gone through this I know what you're going through I can feel it to be validated to feel normal is a really valuable powerful thing when when you're going through a trauma recovery or when you've had experiences where relationships have been thought to be one way but they've actually been quite chaotic and traumatizing in another so I think that there can be valuable doses of validation from survivors and working with other fellows who who have had similar experiences but at the same time there are a lot of people who think they've got it figured out so they stop working their program and they start trying to fix other people and that can be very toxic I liken this to the recovery network of sobriety from substances substances take over your entire life And anybody who's in recovery from a substance can tell you that. Um, And then you notice, like, people who get into the 12-step world, and there isn't really a 12-step program for domestic violence, but those folks who think they've got it all figured out, that's the first uh, warning sign that they always tell you about in a 12-step program. You don't have it figured out if you think you have it figured out. If you think you don't need to do this (laughs) stuff anymore, then you are in trouble. 
So I liken the, the domestic violence community to that because I have seen that happen so often that people go from, okay, I'm working it, I'm feeling good, things are good, I'm doing okay, I can help other people, but I'm going to stop helping myself, and then I'm going to violate what we all learn when you fly on an airplane. The oxygen mask goes on the face first, then it goes to helping yeah. other people get the oxygen mask on themselves. <laughs> so right. that's the, the, the struggle that people think. And that's not to say that everyone's going to have to be working so actively on themselves that they can't help other people, but there is a level of toxicity to that self-help, supportive, survivor-based networking. But that's why it's so important to have other voices, other opinions, other education, other providers, like having a mental health person who's there and understanding of what you've gone through to help you gain that, that clarity, too, because we often will get very confident because we're feeling good, and then we forget, oh, I didn't get here by myself. <laughs> and because I didn't get here by myself, I can't just assume I can maintain it all by myself either. We're, we as humans, regardless of the amount of trauma we've experienced, are not meant to do anything really all by ourselves. Right. No, I agree with that. Now, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, we do have to keep our own oxygen masks on, um, mm-hmm. but uh, when somebody else, uh, tell me the pitfalls that people that have never been um, abused um, mm-hmm. that may want to try to help, what are some of the things that they may do that won't be helpful, that will be actually hurtful? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, the big one is prescribing to people what they should or should not be doing. This is what you should do. You need to do this. Then um, if you don't actually know what that person needs to do, then don't say anything. <laughs> don't give any advice of what needs to be done. Um, I think also people like to steer individuals that need support into the wrong like hands of support. They're like, oh, well, you just need to go to your church or you just need to go here or um, this person's going to help you without even looking into how or what that help is going to look like. So I think that culminates into the, I don't have any education about this, but I'm going to have an opinion about this. Uh, and we right. see this across the board in lots of different areas. I mean, just looking on social media, you see everyone who seems to know how to think to do everyone else's job, yet they don't do that job. So, And they don't really know what goes into doing that job. And when people right. think that they've got it all figured out based on just whatever their opinions are, because, you know, I'm, I'm a PhD student and... I believe in science. Like if you don't have anything that's evidence-based or backed based on the science and proven in a way that we know it can be helpful, then it can absolutely be harmful. Right. I think that another, another challenge too is that people will sit make excuses for what has been going on for that person. Oh, well, you know, he's just or she's just blank or you guys need to work things out or you need to figure things out and, when people don't know the whole story and they haven't had the experience themselves, they will prescribe what they think is best without even knowing the dangers of whatever their advice has been. Right, which could be triggering again. Mhm. Mhm. Because yeah, now you're feeling I, 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 almost depressed because you're feeling mm-hmm. guilty for not. Um, you know, trying to make it work out good enough 
because right. someone said you need to try to work a little harder. And yeah, work why a little harder stay? surviving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, the, and yeah. the truth is that they don't know what's going on behind closed doors. They mm-hmm. just don't. Yeah. Uh, but I, they want to assume the they do. Mm-hmm. That's the case across the board. Being a mental health professional, I see that happening not just with like a lay person or somebody in the community, but within like the um, community of providers and helpers and healers that people often make a lot of assumptions based on whatever their prior experiences or knowledges are based on. And instead of asking and leaning in, there's just a prescriptive, this is the protocol for how to handle something and get going. And a lot of those mistakes go in missing identifying that person everybody is a person and everybody has their own choices and their own feelings their own assumptions and associations and uh, what's important and valuable to them and we often will forget that everybody is a person (laughs) and everybody is allowed to make mistakes I think survivors are often not given enough grace for their attempts of trying to figure something out but really failing to make something meaningful because of one you know, failure of a system over another, and then they get blamed for that. And there's not enough balance in the compassion that we share to each other versus the opportunities of I'm going to tell you what to do that happen in this this community specifically. Yeah, Yeah, I love it when, Mm -hmm. you know, people think that they know what's uh, best for you and Mm -hmm. they really don't even know what's going on. That being said, um, Therapists themselves, I've had a therapist who didn't even really know anything about domestic violence, but didn't really attempt mm-hmm. to help either. Um, another mm-hmm. one didn't, had never experienced domestic violence, and mm-hmm. she was trying to be helpful, uh, but I found I was teaching her more than she was teaching me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's so the question that... is there is, would you recommend uh, someone, um, uh, a therapist that has had experience? Um, like for a person, like as a survivor, like they too have experienced domestic violence in some capacity, yes. whether they were a child or in a, in a relationship. Not necessarily. Yes. I don't think that you have to. Um, have gone through what your patients have gone through in order to be helpful and supportive to them. Mm -hmm. But there is an obligation ethically within the community of of clinicians. I can't speak to other folks who are often show up in this community like life coaches or peer supportive or family supportive individuals. But as somebody who holds a license, you are required to have competencies and and taking continuing education about domestic violence and about uh, all of these other issues that may wind themselves up in your office and in the patients that you're treating. Um, But there is no, no therapist has been created equally for all issues and all people. And I always encourage people when they start working with me, if you don't feel like this is a good match, that's okay. I don't take that personally because I'm not here for you to make me feel good. I'm here to help you get on the road of recovery and the road to wellness. <laughs> and not enough therapists are humble enough to really say that sometimes, as bluntly as maybe I do, but we all mean that. Um, and we all as therapists too are humans, just like the, our patients are, and that a lot of hope can be instilled in the door that's open. 
And I see that with survivors is they lay a lot of eggs into one basket and hope that that's going to be the one, the one channel that's really necessary to getting to the stability they're hoping for, or they're wanting. So I always, my advice to people who are seeking out counseling or getting help for these issues specifically are have a list of questions prepared. Like, have you dealt with domestic violence before? What are the resources available to me here in my community? How connected are you to that? Um, are you comfortable with working with me based on trauma? You know, having something that is even just written out to reference when you sit down with a therapist is really, um, I almost think sometimes necessary so that you make sure you're getting the support that you need and that you're looking for because, like I said earlier, like no therapist is created equal, just like no patient is created equal either. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, just like those that have experienced trauma probably need something different. Yeah. Because each trauma experience is very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and trauma is an individual. Everyone has their own subjective meaning that they make to their trauma. And to say that somebody could have all the objective answers really is a disservice to what the trauma work is. Um, and some people will find that they go to a therapist and get the support they're looking for and things stabilize a little bit, but then down the road they have to go back and maybe they're ready at that point to face some other piece of the trauma. There are so many different parts of uh, the healing process that can be attacked in different, different mechanisms and, and, and from different sources. And the road to recovery is an ongoing road because it's a part of your life because the trauma, especially specifically for this discussion, the trauma is involving other people. Um, and it can be something that it doesn't end. For a lot of survivors, they not only leave their relationship, but then there's some sort of legal, you know, consequences that come from it, or there's court that has to be handled. There's mm-hmm. um, relocation, there's kids, there's animals, there's, family members that are involved in that process can be just so messy that a lot of times you can only handle so much and you got to come back and do some more later. And I, I keep that door open when I work with my patients is, Hey, you've made some good progress here. Let's see what, what holds. And then if you got to come back, you come back. And if you got to go see someone else, go see someone else, but um, not abandoning hope and, and being able to really persevere is something that is very challenging along the way because there are so many discouraging messages that come from the act of leaving and choosing a life of surviving and thriving. And I think a lot of people don't understand that just because somebody broke up or divorced or moved out, that doesn't stop the trauma of the relationship. That does, that's not the, the final future to, in the situation. Right. I think one of the most, dangerous things that someone can say is uh, just get over it and move on. Yes, I agree. Just move on. Why can't you just get over it? And sometimes when I hear that, I want to just yell, well, why can't you just see that I am having a hard time getting over it? (laughs) Um, People get burned out on, on watching someone that they care about still suffer and struggle. And I don't always think it comes from a, a negatively awful place. I think some people really do. That message just gets translated the wrong way. They really do hope that that person can move forward. I hope you can get over this because I want you to live a full life is really what some people Yeah, and what does moving forward look like? Oh, gosh. 
That's such a loaded question too. <laughs> um, moving forward, <laughs> moving forward is going to be reconnecting to a sense of identity that makes your life meaningful. For a lot of folks, especially women I've worked with, it's just being a good mom and being able to be there for their kids, going to their school without a fear of a fight happening or having to cover up bruises or um, being able to take a family vacation in the summer and be carefree and relaxed about it. Uh, For some, it's understanding who they are outside of a relationship and really creating this new identity that's fierce and empowered and doing meaningful work. And moving forward is going to be delineated based on the stability that somebody already has created on their road to recovery. Um, and, And there's going to be setbacks. So moving forward with a lot of compassion and kindness and also flexibility in what moving forward is, is always going to be defined by that person while also acknowledging that there are other people in your life that are going to help you navigate that too. Moving forward is not something you do alone. It's something that you have to do in collaboration with your community around you. That saying it takes a village doesn't stop at raising a kid. It takes a village to be a human, and it takes a village to be a community. So moving forward is getting that connection to your sense of community and really making an impact based on however you want your life and your mark to be, you know, remembered. And for some people, it's just being in peace (laughs) and living a normal life. Um, And for others, it's going out and becoming a world-famous advocate speaker extraordinaire and and making other people who've had terrible experiences or had, you know, irreparable damage done in their life feel like they can actually move forward themselves. There's a whole spectrum of moving forward, but on that same token, no one can really tell anybody what that's going to look like. When I work with my clients on moving forward, we, we redefine life goals. What do you want life to look like for you? What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of people do you want in your life? What's valuable to you? Right. And that sometimes is a really tough question for people to answer. <laughs> but if that is a tough question to answer, that's also an indicator of where we have to start. So. Right. Well, when I talk to people uh, about mm-hmm. my healing, I just say I'm still healing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I feel that I still am personally. Um I feel that I've gone through a large part of it. I was talking to another mm-hmm. friend of mine, and um, I said, how long did it take for you to heal? She goes, well, uh, I don't know. I'll let you know. I've been out 20 years, and I'm still healing. Now, this is a woman who's very successful in the realm mm-hmm. of domestic violence. She has a huge company um, where she employs a lot of people, um, mm-hmm. you know, for advocates and, and case managers and and so forth to help uh, victims and um, not only victims to heal. I don't know if it's really the healing aspect, but it's helping them get to resources. And mm-hmm. um, so anyway, I, you know, I look up to her. I mean, she's like a, an icon to me. And I said, yeah. 20 years and you're still healing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, yep. <laughs> and so, you know what? it's okay that there might not be an end to this. Um, It's okay that as long as you continue to move forward, as long as it doesn't stifle your life, as long as, Mm -hmm. you know, 
you can continue going. I think, too, it's not just the idea about continuing going, but it's this idea that you can warm to the idea that life can be boring, that life can get in some way complacent or stagnant, and nothing wrong is going or nothing bad is going to happen to you because of that. Um, you think about the throes of an abusive relationship, the highs and the lows and the constant uncertainties, all of that chaos. For some people, moving forward means being okay with the fact that you had a boring year <laughs> without any chaos. Um, that yeah. idea of normalcy, right, that I don't have to always have all this drama going on in my life, both inside and outside of my head, that I can just live meaningfully without having great expectations of having to defend my life constantly or having to be on the top of a mountain. Well, trauma continues long after the drama ceases as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. And that's because what I'm it, kind of referring to is the trauma that mm-hmm. continues following the the. Mm-hmm end of the drama or the abuse. Correct. Yeah. Because they have to deal with the PTSD and the anxiety and the depression and the suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and the low self-image and so forth. Mm -hmm. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah, you're right. And there are times with anybody, regardless of what type of trauma they've endured or the complexity of their trauma, there are just times where, Uh, trauma anniversaries or there are reminders that occur, those triggers that occur that somebody has a really tough month um, because it's the month where they left. It's the month where maybe their kids got taken away temporarily. It's the month where they slept in a homeless shelter for the first time in their whole lives. It's a tough month of transition where, um, you know, they had somebody breathing down their back in in a different capacity because it was a a lawyer or a public defender or some proceeding that had to happen in order to maintain that safety and stability. And uh, there are people who live their life very fine for 11 months out of the year, but that 12th month is, is scary because all of those memories come back. The, the body keeps score. Russell Vanderkalk, he is one of the um, leading trauma folks in the world of psychology and he wrote a book the body keeps score because our bodies remember trauma um, and our bodies you know, hold on to that trauma so correct mm-hmm. i mean our brain might not but our body remembers mm-hmm. it i mm-hmm. mean i remember just this last march i was just so upset and i'm like why am i upset and mm-hmm. then um i really short and this is so out of character for me and i'm like mm-hmm. why is why am i so short with people why am i you know, just kind of upset inside and, you know, what's mm-hmm. not, and, and come to, you know, as I reflected, I, I remembered that that was five years ago that I was, you know, badly beaten mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's when everything happened. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah. your and body you're, you're, sometimes remembers things that your head doesn't, you know, thinks is mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, and and that re-triggering is somatic. It's it's based in your body. I've worked with people who they have um, physical ailments that come back at certain periods of the year, and they're like, "Oh, it's my episode of my chronic back pain." And it's like, "No, it's not that. It's not that simple. 
it's your body remembering what's happened to it because we all live in, in cycles and we have our calendar, right? And so our calendar yeah. makes our meaning because that's how we remember birthdays. It's how we remember anniversaries. It's how we remember when to wear green so we don't have to get pinched on St. Patrick's Day, right? But there's all of these um, meanings that we've created culturally that also mean a lot to people who've experienced trauma. And your body does remember. That's why people, when they're processing trauma, they, when they're asleep, they wake up or they're covered covered in cold sweat or feeling like paralyzed or dysregulated in some capacity and have no idea why. (laughs) But it's because your body is remembering things that you may not have those active memories for either. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, this has been great. I mean, I totally love the topic of trauma because obviously I do write on it as well, you know, for my... Mm -hmm in my dissertation, but um, Mm -hmm. is there anything in closing uh, that you would like to add to our discussion tonight that you think we might have missed? I think that just my message for folks who don't know a lot about domestic violence or don't know a lot about trauma is that they should get out and, and educate themselves a little more before they inform their opinion of assumptions and biases and just check in and say, what do I not know? What can I learn and how can I be supportive? Um, and on that same, that same token, it's also how can I step out of the way too? Because a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to help somebody, but that may not be what you're good at or what your calling is. So I guess it's, an, it's a call to action, but it's also an invitation to impasse. For people who maybe they still need to work on themselves a little bit or they have something that is is bothering them and and acknowledging that they're not going to fix anybody until they've worked on And that's not to say there's anything wrong with you, but it is to say that it's time to take notice and look inward before you look outward too. Right. Yeah. And sometimes we've, um, sometimes those people may have also endured some trauma that they don't mm-hmm. remember or that they don't want to remember or that they didn't mm-hmm. deal with properly. Right. Right. Cer- certainly don't go hunting for trauma that isn't there. Don't try and create some sort of memory that isn't there or create some sort of right. falsity that justifies what you do. Um, but b- living your best self and allowing yourself to live well is going to set you and everybody else up in your life to um, benefit from that relationship rather than, be harmed by the the hurt that can happen that is oftentimes unintentional and it comes from a good place, but we forget it's not about our intention. It is the impact of our actions. Right. And intentions are sometimes good. It's just mm-hmm. it they go about it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think people being able to be humble and say, you know what, I kind of messed up back there. <laughs> I really jacked that up, or I, I didn't help you there, and being able to also be human. I give everyone permission to be human all the time. You have permission to be imperfect and to make mistakes, but you do not have permission to sit on them and not grow and not learn. That's, that's Those are things right. that are inexcusable to me. Yeah, I agree with that, and... Um, Anyone who truly cares about someone that has endured domestic violence, I would think that they would want to learn as much as they could so that they could be Mm -hmm. helpful instead of just 
throwing out ideas mm-hmm. that are unfounded. Right. And and for those who are struggling with their own healing process and their own recovery process, if something seems too good to be true, that's because it is. Unfortunately, in all of these healing and recovery communities, there are often a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing that say that they're going to help you and everything's going to be fine. But ultimately, they're, um, and I know you've talked about this on other other shows, but just there, there's victim vulturing that happens and people will take advantage of the fact that somebody really is struggling to heal. So I, I let everyone know if it sounds like a used car salesman or it seems like it's just too good to be true, it, it is. And to trust that instinct and that intuition that people are often very fragile and recreating in the recovery process. Like, oh, I used to know myself. I used to be assured, but now I'm doubting myself. I should maybe doubt myself in this situation too. And they end up getting hurt along the way even more so because those people in the community of healing are hurting too. Yeah. And describe uh, victim vulturing again. Oh, sure. So, Victim vulturing is where people who have access or have means or have some sort of credibility and capacity like an organization um, or a group of people who maybe they're not under a name, but they are just known um, in the community where they take advantage of the fact that there are a lot of people who are hurting. They uh, will promise that there's healing and recovery that will happen, but first you need to do these few things for me or Because uh, you have struggled or you've experienced a domestic violence situation or relationship or an ongoing pattern of relationships, I'd like you to tell your story so that I can put it on my website. Or it's almost like putting people on a show, a a pony show, based on the fact that they've endured trauma and they've survived, survived often like unbelievable situations. And I've been honored to hear so many stories from survivors of domestic violence about what they have survived and endured. And I don't think that anybody should be making money off of that unless it's the survivor telling that story themselves and condoning to that themselves on their own fruition, their own ideas. So victim vulturing comes from this idea that people find it lucrative, that people have experienced trauma, and that's completely mm-hmm. unethical to, to, in my eyes. Yeah, and the person making the money isn't the victim. It's the person putting it out there. Yeah, the organization or individual who ultimately becomes famous based on the fact that um, famous or or gaining prestige in some capacity based on the fact that they've helped somebody who's been hurt by someone else. Right. Okay, one more question. Um, Yeah. Do you use EMDR? Uh, I am signed up to do training for EMDR. I'll be doing that training in the fall, so I will be adding EMDR to my repertoire of trauma treatments. Uh, I believe that um, there are so many different types of trauma treatments that are out there, and EMDR is the next one on my list to add in um, so that I can help people based on what their needs are and what their requests are. EMDR has become increasingly popularized and, and requested by not just the community of domestic violence, but law enforcement, veteran communities as well. So it's something yeah. that people value and they find that it is helpful. And for me, it's not up to um, me to really decide what's going to be the right trauma treatment for somebody without having talked to them. And if somebody wants EMDR and they learned about it and that's what they think is going to help them, then I want to be a resource to them and help them heal in whatever capacity that 
Jody and VR be the right fit for them, then I'd be happy to be used that way. Yeah. I um, had mm-hmm. some EMDR done um, not long ago, and I'm going to tell you, it really helped me. I mean, mm-hmm. seriously, A lot of folks me. feel like it helps. Yeah, a lot of folks have that shared opinion. Um, and it's just another way, and for people who don't know what EMDR is, it's this eye movement desensitization that happens where uh, it allows the brain to reprocess trauma by being bilaterally stimulated, meaning the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain are allowed to communicate to each other in a way, specifically when trauma is being recalled or experienced so that the body's sensations can be grounded a little bit more and the system can re-regulate in a way that trauma no longer is such a huge overwhelm and, and a shock to somebody's system. And that can be very powerful for someone to be able to sit in the room even just to talk about their trauma when even thinking about trauma or trauma therapy makes somebody want to literally hide under their covers and not come out. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's a good one because it really helps me. Something that was very, very old and um, it's still just, oh, I just, oh. And I tried Mm -hmm. to re-trigger it because I wanted to see if it was really going to work. I mean, afterwards. Yes. And it didn't re-trigger at all, and it hasn't up to this point. It's been about four or five months. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you would recommend EMDR based on your experiences. Oh, absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. I did it. I'll be honest and say I went in not thinking it would work. Because nothing mm-hmm. else had. I had worked 35 years to get over this anger and almost hatred to a point. 35 years. Mm-hmm. And um, I I couldn't get past it. And so when someone recommended that, I'm like, yeah, right, whatever. Okay, I'll try it. <laughs> I'll try anything. You were skeptical. <laughs> so I tried it. And um, they explained, she explained exactly what would happen and how it would happen. Mm-hmm. And that I just wouldn't care anymore. And mm-hmm. when she was done, she was right. I just didn't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> well, it's not that you didn't care anymore. I'm sure you still care, but the way that you experienced the caring was a little bit more manageable than it right. was Well, before. it didn't. It didn't seem to matter, you know. I mean, it was like it yeah. was. It did, and and literally, it only took one try. And a, another friend of mine said, you know, if it only took one attempt, then you're ready to get rid of it because um, it usually takes several mm-hmm. times. And uh, I said, ready? I was way ready. I've been trying to get rid of it for years, <laughs> trying to get rid of this anger and this, you know, built up inside of me and. Mm-hmm. And um, so, it, yeah, so I do highly recommend it. So I think that's great that you're going to add that. So I just wanted to throw that out there to my listeners, that that is one technique that may or may not mm-hmm. work for them, but it works for me. Well, I like when people share their success stories because then people know that based on your own experience that it's something that was helpful, which is very different than what we were talking about earlier where we talked about how people have had no experiences, but they seem to be very helpful. <laughs> yeah. and they, they they like the help they're giving they think it's the it should be listened to mm-hmm. that's the the problem mm-hmm. why are you listening mm-hmm. to me you should be doing what i'm telling you to do this is what you should do so 
but they don't know anything about it. Right. Right. Yeah, it's the that idea of the WebM being how to on recovering and when your whole life has completely changed based on trauma. And if we were all WebM being yeah. everything, you know, we we'd all be diagnosing ourselves with some really terrible diseases. That's why we still have to go to doctors anyways. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not like yeah. we don't get sick or something doesn't, like, it's kind of like diabetes. Sometimes it flares up and sometimes it mm-hmm. goes down because we're managing it real well. And then sometimes it might flare up, you know, whatever, and mm-hmm. then it dies down because we're managing it real well. And then we forget to manage it real well and then it flares up, you know. That is exactly a really good uh, metaphor for the healing process of, of trauma. <laughs> if we neglect it, it'll come back. If we take care of it, then we'll continue on our road to recovery, right? Yeah. yeah. All right, sis, I can't wait to see you next week for sure. Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to being in Utah and at the conference and being able to connect with more folks on just this message of hope and recovery, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited. Yep. <laughs> okay, so I will um, I will chat with you later. I'll definitely see you uh, next week for sure. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on tonight. Hey, thanks for being on. No problem. Good night. Night. Okay, in closing, I just want to thank Ashley for all of her help tonight and talking about trauma and um, severe trauma and what the brain does and how it acts and the differences between individuals and um, the difference between uh, different philosophies of of uh, healing and how healing actually works. Um, uh, she went through so much in such a short time. I'm going to tell you, this is like a piece of gold. This right here, so I think probably the best piece of gold I have right now in uh, healing from trauma and any domestic violence victim has endured trauma and and we need to be respectful of each individual's process and time that they're taking to to recover when they're on the road to recovery or trying to recover attempting the feat anyway and what recovery looks like and um, how moving on is imperative, uh, but it happens differently for each other. And that being said, I want to invite everyone to my Domestic Violence and Abuse Conference in Ivins, Utah. Uh, You can find out more information on savve.org, save, savve.org. Ashley will be one of our keynote speakers, obviously. Why? Because she's so knowledgeable in the brain and in trauma and in um, endurance. She's uh, actually going to be talking on hidden messages of victims so that people can identify what those might look like as well and be able to help in that manner. I want to thank everyone for listening tonight, and I want you to stay safe, and I will see you next week. Good night.